Crested in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the next day of our 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Hope you're all enjoying this little bit of a lull at the end of the year before things get crazy again. And uh, in this hour, we're going to sit down with a guest who has become somewhat frequent on the uh, crest in the afternoon in the last year or so. And that is Andre Villeneuve, who's the author of Divine Marriage from Eden to the End of Days. He's also Associate Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary here in Detroit, and he received a PhD from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2013, writing his dissertation on the topic of nuptial symbolism in the New Testament and in ancient Jewish writings. And you can learn more about his work at catholicsforisrael.com, which is why we've gotten to know him so well in the last six months or so, especially since the uh, what happened on October 7th in Israel. He's been on the program a few times, and today he's going to talk about something a little bit different, though. Uh, scripture portrays the covenant between God and his people as a divine human marriage spanning through all of human history. In the eyes of the Jewish scholars, God married humanity in the Garden of Eden, but that Eden was broken by sin and restored throughout the Old Testament. We will explain this union of divine love further with Andre Villeneuve at number eight in today's countdown. And then at number seven in the next hour, we look at the origins of gender ideology. Uh, this question of gender, who we are as men and women, has never been more pressing or misunderstood. And as I'm sure you said, you know, listening to this program, listening to other programs on Catholic Radio, like Teresa Tamio, you know that we've been discussing this more and more over the last couple of years. And what Al finds so unfortunate is this is an issue that should be left in the hands of psychologists, but it's been hijacked by political activists on both sides of the aisle. And as Wes Smith pointed out a few days ago when we aired his interview about the pushback against gender ideology, if you look at countries like Sweden and the UK, they're backing way off on gender-affirming care for uh, people, who, especially for kids. And uh, our country hasn't caught up with the science on that yet because this has become so ideologically driven. But uh, Abigail, author of The Genesis of Gender, joining us again to explore the roots of the gender paradigm. That's all coming up over the next two hours after this news break. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, December 28th. It's the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need. Learn more at visitingangels.com. A second American who was originally believed to be taken hostage by Hamas is dead. Reporters say Judy Haggai died during the surprise attacks on September 7th. The announcement of her death comes after her husband was pronounced dead last week. The dual Israeli-American citizens were on their morning walk when the attack happened. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is clarifying recent comments she made about the Civil War. Haley faced widespread criticism after failing to mention slavery as a cause of the war during a town hall meeting in New Hampshire. During a radio interview Thursday, Haley said 
Of course, the Civil War was about slavery, adding that she was speaking more broadly on the importance of individual rights and liberties for all people. Haley on Wednesday was asked by a voter, what was the cause of the Civil War? She gave a lengthy response about the role of the government and the rights of the people, but never discussed slavery. Another busy travel day is underway as people return home after Christmas. According to FlightAware, over 3,200 flights have been delayed today. This comes as over 50 flights have been canceled. Meanwhile, AAA is recommending drivers to hit the road sooner rather than later as more and more vehicles start to clog the highways and byways. More than 115 million people have traveled this holiday season. And pop your champagne this new year because it could cease to exist. New data shows the grapes used in almost all champagne are just some of hundreds upon the brink of extinction. That's due to the human-caused climate crisis altering water patterns in famous wine-growing regions, including Champagne in northern France. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number eight. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Andre Villeneuve. He's associate professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He received his doctorate from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2013, where his dissertation covered nuptial symbolism in the New Testament and the ancient Jewish writings. His main areas of interest include the study of sacred scripture, the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, leading pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and fostering the reconciliation of Israel and the Church through the work of Catholics for Israel, and you can learn more at catholicsforisrael.com. Andre, good to see you again. Hello, Alex. Good yeah. to be here. Thanks for having me. Talk to me that your book, Divine Marriage from Eden to the End of Days, emerged from your doctoral work. Is that right? It has. It's a book that's got a long history. It's about, uh, well, it came out in this recension just a little more than a year ago, but uh, its Genesis goes back, uh, not to Genesis 1, not quite as far as that, <laughs> but uh, it goes back at least, I think, 15 or 16 years, go, going back to about 2007, back when I was a starting PhD student at the uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I was trying to scramble, trying to find some kind of topic that would be relevant to my studies over there and somehow connected with Catholic theology and would be able to be a bridge between Jewish yeah. um, exegesis and and Christian theology as well. And so uh, it started back then. I, I, I still have this original piece of paper. I, I had all these arrows and all these topics, and I was trying to make sense of coming up with a theme. And um, so it took me about six or seven years to write. I submitted in 2012, wow. and so that was accepted in 2013 when I got the PhD. And then it was published in the first very scholarly edition uh, by Brill. Mm-hmm. It was called uh, Nuptial Symbolism uh, Through key moments of salvation history, something like that. I don't yeah. even remember. A very, uh, barely edited from my dissertation, still, so mm-hmm. still extremely academic and yeah. very expensive. Yeah. And so after that uh, it came out, I thought, okay, I'm done with that for the rest of my life. I don't want <laughs> I don't want to deal with that topic anymore, which of course was, uh, was not true. I knew it at the time. But then after a few years, I thought, well, I've put in so much work into it, and I know that this is really too academic for most normal right. folks, you know? Yeah. And so I thought maybe I'll just write a somewhat simplified version of it. Yeah. So if you look at the book, it's still a pretty robust uh, scholarly book, but uh, yeah. it's a little more accessible to most uh, most people. And uh, 
I mean, what you do is you really give an overview of salvation history yeah. from the standpoint of the nuptial relationship. Is this nuptial imagery best developed within the Catholic tradition, or do you find other Christian traditions working it? Well, that has got a long history as well, so the, the Catholic tradition certainly developed it, you know, beginning with the, the Church Fathers and then very much the, the medievals, and a big part of my book is the uh, exegesis of the Song of Songs. Yeah. So there's a lot of that in Catholic tradition. There's some in Protestant tradition, though we see a, a certain turn towards rationalism, yeah. as we know, going starting with Protestantism, then into the Enlightenment. But obviously, this does not begin with a Catholic theology or exegesis. It's very much a Jewish thing. Yeah. And uh, there's much mystery surrounding the origins of the Song of Songs itself, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. But the question is, you know, the, the kind of more modern view is to say, okay, it was just a kind of a, a love song between the, the guy and a girl, that's right? right? Who loved yeah, each that's, other. That's kind of, the, that's right. It's kind of now been reduced to this kind of love poetry, romance, right. a bit of romantic poetry. Right. Know. Which is absolutely possible because the name of God is not mentioned right. in the Song of Songs and there is no right. mention, at least no explicit mention that this is a metaphor or an allegory for the, the love between God and Israel right. and God and his people. But some, uh, I think most modern scholars today would say, no, it's just an Iran love song between those two, kind of a marriage uh, uh, then, then hymn. How did it end up in the canon, then, I, is what I would That's ask. an excellent <laughs> question. So you still have a minority of scholars who would say, no, actually, there was something intentional right there from the beginning. I mean, it could end up in the canon as a, as a marriage song. Sure. Where, I mean, Ecclesiastes sure. made it in the canon, too, and it's <laughs> yeah. a book full of, of skepticism. Very grim book. Very grim book. Yeah. Right, right. So there's, uh, there's some debate. Most scholars, as I said today, see it as a marriage song, but we know that quite early, definitely at the time of Christ, that we, we see the beginning of, uh, of an allegor uh, allegorical interpretation, which throughout the history of interpretation has become by far the predominant view of reading the Song of Songs as this allegory between God and the Church. Yeah. And that, of course, builds on what we find in both the New and Old Testament, the, the marital metaphor, which begins most explicitly really with the prophet Hosea. And we have it also in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and a little bit in Isaiah as well. And then that's picked up in the New Testament, obviously. But So in, in Jewish thinking, is this marriage metaphor, ever, does that ever become central to Jewish thought? Or is it just something that I mentioned, uh, it starts with Hosea? Okay, and so you've got that unusual relationship there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it? Does it go back to you know Jewish self understanding before? The exile? Before the yeah. exile. It's difficult to tell, but just the testimony of the prophets is a pretty strong witness. Again, Hosea, Jeremiah uses it, Ezekiel, and yeah. Isaiah. It's not all the prophets, and in the rest of Scripture, we don't find a whole lot of it. In the yeah. Pentateuch, there are barely a few hints. Okay. Uh, of course, the, the covenant is central to the Pentateuch, but, yes. and the... Um, the revelation at Mount Sinai came to be seen as a nuptial moment, as a betrothal, but you can't really read that explicitly in the book of Exodus. Gotcha. Right? God That's... makes it clear, I'm making a covenant with you, I'll be a king of priests and a holy nation, yeah. but it's not saying I'm espousing myself to you or I'm betrothing right, you. Right, right. So that, that becomes something that is seen, uh, and it's read back into what happened there right. in light of uh, later Right. Uh, understandings of who God is and our relationship to him. Right. So it's definitely there at the time of the exile because we have the pre-exilic prophets like Hosea and, yeah. uh, and Jeremiah. So, But it, it took off 
later in the Second Temple period, and then after the time of Christ with all the rabbinic writings okay. and commentaries on the Song of Songs. So the rabbinic writings uh, make much of this, too, this uh, marital metaphor. Very much. That's where it, it completely takes off. Wow. It's, uh, it actually goes crazy with what we know as the Targum and the Midrash on the Song of Songs. They're ancient Jewish uh, commentaries. The mm-hmm. Targum is the Aramaic interpretation. Uh, it's supposed to be translation. Uh, the Targum is technically a translation of the Hebrew texts. An Aramaic translation? A, a, is, Aramaic, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's actually very much a paraphrase. Yes, and it's fairly loose. Very, extremely <laughs> loose. In fact, the Targum on the Song of Songs, you can't even recognize that it's the Song of Songs. Really? Wow. And uh, I, I don't know if any of my students will hear this uh, now because I always give them this text, which I call a mystery text. And I ask them to read it and to try to identify to which book of scripture it's related to. And it usually takes them weeks and I have to give them hints, but it turns out it's the Targum on the Song of Songs, which reads the Song of Songs verse by verse. And once you see it, you can't not see it anymore, but it rewrites the entire Song of Songs as the history of Israel. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's remarkable. Um, what principles from the scriptural symbolism explored in your book can be applied today as we think about the love between Christ and the church? Well, that was one of the reasons why I chose this topic, because being at Hebrew University, I couldn't really write a, a dissertation on, on Catholic theology, right? right? They're focused on uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, a little bit of ancient Christianity, but it's, it was definitely not a, a degree focused on pastoral application. But I was still thinking, uh, you know, at the back of my mind, how could I make this somehow relevant? And obviously, I, I don't think I really need to convince anyone that marriage is in crisis today, not just marriage, but even since I've published my, my dissertation, um, this has devolved to an entire crisis on the very identity of the human person, as we know, uh, the, the identity of, of the human person as created male and female in the image of God. And so even even back then, when I was trying to think of a topic, I was trying to figure out what could I do that's rooted in these ancient texts, but would have um, pastoral... Uh, application or at least would shed light on the mystery of love between God and his people mm-hmm. and that how that sheds light on marriage between men and women. Yeah. So you you were able to see this uh, nuptial symbolism going all the way back to Adam and Eve? Yeah, for sure, but there yeah. too when you read uh, Genesis uh, 1, 2 and 3 right. uh, it's funny what is not said. Of course, we know that account of the creation of man is extremely brief, it is mm-hmm. extremely schematic, and more is not told than, than we are told. But notice what, what words are never used, and they're love, never used, right? right? Marriage. Right. We're just told, okay, we're told that, uh, right. you, Adam, you will leave your father and mother, be joined to your wife, you shall become one flesh. So there's a good hint. We're talking about a serious union here, a sexual union. Sure. But the word marriage is, is not used. And uh, so... Uh, of course, everything that is not said in those initial chapters of Genesis becomes really uh, choice materials for biblical interpretation because the ancients, even at the time of Christ or the Second Temple period, you know, the few first, the, the few centuries before Christ, uh, of course, marriage was a big deal both in Judaism and also in early Christianity, and yeah. so there was a great expansion of those texts. Um, yeah. Genesis one to three, especially. Yeah. So that, again, uh, from later um, revelation and later reflection yeah. upon God uh, helps us to look back at the earlier uh, texts right. and see their um, templates. 
right. for what's to come later. Exactly. Is that the way to look at it? Right. Um, so the the Midrash, which again is a uh, an ancient Jewish commentary on the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I did a lot with the Midrash on Genesis 1 and 2, and what we see, what does the Midrash do? It, it, the Midrash generally expands, greatly expands the biblical stories. And so what we're not told in Genesis 1 and 2, the Midrash says actually God was the... Um, uh, the matchmaker between Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. and God married creation himself. It's not just he created the world, but he betrothed all of creation to himself. Yes. And then there's other traditions that say that God betrothed the, the Sabbath to Adam and Eve. And so, the, or the Sabbath, every day of the week had a partner, right? The first and second day, the third and fourth, the fifth and sixth, but the Sabbath had no, no partner. Huh. And so in anticipation, God uh, anticipated saying, okay, the Sabbath, you're going to be, your bride's going to be Israel, but you have to wait a bit, right, until yes. Israel is constituted, and that. So it connects Genesis with Exodus, with the giving of the of the Torah, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, with. Uh, so the the Sabbath at this point is not just a commandment; it's it's a betrothal, right? Yeah, yeah. Going back to this idea of uh, a union, a betrothal between God and creation, is that something which you see? You mentioned it here. Uh, is is there a we know about Christ in the church is yep. there a sense of god and the world as a couple god and the world as a couple yeah the created order yeah once yeah. again it's something you see more explicitly in the the rabbinic sources so we're mm-hmm. talking most of them are post christ yeah. the first centuries of the christian era um so that is, it's more hinted at in the Old Testament, but even before that, Second Temple period, uh, guys like Philo and Josephus around the time of Christ really saw this idea of God being wedded to the world. Very good. Hold it there if you would, Andre. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, we are looking at the work that he's done on the nuptial symbolism in the New and Old Testaments, and we're going to continue uh, on the other side of the break. Father Benedict Groeschel. In the church, we speak of seven gifts wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, loyalty, courage, and reverence or fear of the Lord. When I speak about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and these gifts come, they give you the ability to go beyond your strength. If you're struggling to be a good person, a good member of your religion, you know it's a struggle and you don't always make it. I've been at it many, many decades and I still struggle and trip and fall and have holes in my socks. Struggling to be a good person, something that we need help at. And this help comes to us by these gifts of the Holy Spirit. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Award-winning EWTN TV and radio host Michael O'Neill has written a new book based on his popular series, They Might Be Saints. This latest EWTN publishing release introduces you to some of this country's greatest blesseds and venerables. From an explorer priest to the U.S. Bishop of All Media and a former slave turned successful businessman, this book is filled with the unique stories and achievements of exceptionally inspired men and women. 
Discover how some of the holiest Americans in history can transform your faith life. They Might Be Saints, the latest release from EWTN Publishing, now available at EWTNRC.com or call 1-800-854-6316. That's EWTNRC.com or call 1-800-854-6316. What is the significance of the anointing oil or chrism during the administration of Confirmation? According to the Catholic Catechism, when a Christian is thus anointed, he is marked with a permanent spiritual seal. Anointing in biblical times was rich with symbolism. Oil is a sign of abundance and joy. It cleanses and limbers the body. It is a sign of healing. Think of it being administered to cuts and bruises. It gives radiant beauty and strength. All these features of oil are present in the sacramental life. The pre-baptismal anointing with the oil of catechumens signifies cleansing and strengthening. Anointing the sick signifies healing and comfort. In confirmation and holy orders, the post-baptismal anointing with sacred chrism denotes consecration. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, teach me to pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, teach me to pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. The best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number eight. eight. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Andre Villeneuve. We're looking at his work uh, in the book, uh, The Divine, Divine Marriage from Eden to the End of Days. And uh, it's it really you do get uh, a big picture of salvation history uh, yeah. through this nuptial imagery that we see uh, in scripture. Uh, I was looking at the, what you wrote regarding the uh, the Gospel of John, and um, I never I've never heard this before, so I, I want to make sure we talked about it. You mentioned that in the fourth gospel. Nuptial symbolism is introduced by the sequence of seven days of a new creation, culminating in the wedding at Cana, where Jesus, as the new Adam, addresses his mother as woman, hinting at the woman of Genesis 3.15. That's great stuff, but yeah. tell, tell me, show me where you, where does that, how do you pick that up in the Gospel of John? How do you pick up the sequence? Of seven, the, the Gospel of John uh, obviously is a masterpiece, and 
it's it's actually full of nuptial symbolism, but it's very hidden. You mm-hmm. know how many times Jesus is called bridegroom in the the Gospel of John? Uh, just one. Mm-hmm. There's one in John three twenty nine by John the Baptist. And but when you look at the wedding at Cana at first sight. Probably most people would think, oh, it's right there in the wedding at Cana. But at the wedding at Cana, Jesus is not the one who's getting married, right? right. He, he turns the, the water into wine. And uh, y- you can get a sense there's something going on here, but it's hard to put your finger on it unless you really look carefully at the text and have an idea of what's the, the Jewish background behind it. So, yeah, it, it, obviously John chapter 2 comes after John chapter 1. And so mm-hmm. what leads up to the wedding at Cana? Well, for one thing, through... And, and by the way, just let me say, for, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with this, it really is important to know that the gospel writers were conscious of sequencing yes. and the story form, what they were t- saying and telling. These, these are not just random uh, reminiscences that they're throwing out. They're, they're creating yeah. a story. Here. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And they're very familiar. They're very aware of what the Old Testament teaches. So to really understand the Gospels, you have to have a good knowledge of the Old Testament. Yeah. Otherwise, it barely works. So what's going on in John chapter 1, we see first, obviously, the revelation of the Logos, the Word made flesh, Mm -hmm. and then we meet John the Baptist, and then we hear about the sequence of days. If you look at the text carefully, it says John the Baptist appears, and then the next day he met the the disciples, and the next day he saw Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God, and the next day, so you have a sequence of four days, right? And then it says in John chapter 2, verse 1, and on the third day there was a wedding at Cana. So what do we see here? We see a sequence of four days plus three. So really, the wedding at Cana is at the end on the seventh day of this sequence of, of yeah. a week uh, of sorts. And we hear the beginning of the Gospel of John. How does the Gospel of John begin? Uh, as is well known, in the beginning right. was the Word, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's been noted by many scholars. In the beginning, it's echoing the book of Genesis. And we have right. this theme of light and of uh, of uh, well of of the words becoming flesh, so there are some connections with with Genesis one, and then also it's well known that it's a bit odd the way Jesus talks to Mary. That's right. right. So it, have, everybody points that out. Yeah, is he being rude here? Is he being impersonal? Right. Why does he address her as woman? A woman. What is this between me and you? It's very awkward in English. In Hebrew, it's a lot more idiomatic, mali valach, what is to me and to you, uh, it is a bit familiar, and it does seem a little bit, a little bit rough, even, uh, even in Hebrew. So, uh, obviously, someone calling uh, his, his mother woman, it's only hinted at the Gospel of John, but from this we get more light from the book of Revelation, the other great joining uh, writing at the end of the mm-hmm. New Testament, where we see in John chapter 12, a woman who comes who is clothed with the sun and the, the moon under her feet, and she gives birth to one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So that's an allusion to Psalm 2. Yep. And obviously we're talking about this woman who is, in many ways she represents Israel, but she's also the mother of the Messiah, and so right. she is Mary. And then we see her battling this ancient serpent, who is also known as Satan and the devil. So Revelation 12 identifies the ancient serpent in the garden, because in the garden he's never identified as Satan or the devil, right? right, It's a later tradition. And uh, so John 2 through Revelation 12 really makes makes it quite evident that there is a connection between... between Adam and Eve, and then between Jesus and his mother. 
Yeah. So she's she's, she's Mary is the second Eve in that passage. Is that That's right? right. Right. Fascinating. Right. But there's also a very strong connection with uh, the the Sinai revelation, and that is even less noticed by by commentaries. So what's going on at um, at at the wedding at Cana? So once again, Jesus will turn water into wine. We mm-hmm. see a bridegroom who is kind of clueless. We don't even know who he is, mm-hmm. right? And we have the the master of the feast. And then we see Mary who says uh, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, can you think of a passage in the Old Testament that sounds a lot like that? Do whatever he tells you. Now, that's a command. We hear it said in the affirmative much earlier in the Old Testament. Whatever he has, whatever he has said, we will do and we will obey. Yeah, that's the children of Israel. Children of Israel who say that three times at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 24. Yeah, that's fascinating. Right. And uh, when you look at when did God reveal, reveal himself at Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19, we're told that on the third day, God would appear at, at Mount Sinai. On the third day. Interesting. And the Targum on the book of Exodus, once again, the Targum is this ancient Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, has actually a sequence of four days leading up to this third day, leading up to Mount Sinai. So basically, (laughs) Moses and the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai. The next day, Moses went up on the mountain. The next day, God said, prepare yourselves because I'm going to appear on the third day. And on the third day, God appeared on the mountain. Wow. And... He gives Israel the Torah, which we know as the law, and in Jewish tradition, the Torah is compared with good wine, <laughs> the, the wine that brings joy, that brings uh, that brings life, and um, wow. yeah, so we really see a, a strong connection here between this, uh, this wine that's given, and as I said a bit earlier, Mount Sinai in Jewish tradition is recognized as a betrothal, and so this is where God calls Israel to become his bride. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so when you read the, the <laughs> that's, that's incredible background. There's a lot there. So when you read the wedding at Cana in light of Mount Sinai, you realize, wow, and what did God reveal at Mount Sinai to Israel apart from, from the Torah? Um, covenant. Covenant, yeah. but also himself. Yes. R- yes. Right? Yeah. His, and, and he's known they, as revealing his, yeah. his glory. Yes, his right? glory. That's right. What, and, did, what did Jesus reveal at the wedding at Cana? Yeah. Yeah, he said, "My hour has not yet come," but then he revealed his glory. We're told at the end of the narrative. And let's let's actually that's always puzzled people that uh, on the one hand Jesus says, "My hour has not yet come," but it's his first public miracle. Yeah, uh, is he reluctant at that point? What does he What does he mean? His is hour. He, he's referring to the. He's referring to the the passion. Yeah. by my hour. Yeah, he yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. So in other words, it's the beginning of his public ministry. It's his first miracle, and there's an anticipation of his passion. And yeah. so, in in a sense, uh, Mary prompts him by asking the servants to do whatever he does. You know, this yeah. is a response of or an echo of Israel at Mount Sinai, their obedience to the Lord, and now the servants are, are to obey what Jesus says, and that leads to this revelation of the wine, the wine of the new Torah. To revealing Jesus' glory, but His glory will be fully revealed really during the Paschal mystery at yeah. the, the the crucifixion and resurrection. It it must be difficult for you to hear sermons because they're thin by comparison to oh. what you're describing right now. Oh, you really want to go there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening and I'm thinking back over all the sermons that I gave years ago. Yeah, and I'm thinking to myself, ah, that never even occurred to me. <laughs> We have a lot of room for improvement in our sermons. <laughs> this uh, the the alleged seven minutes uh, yeah. limit of uh, 
of sermons. Our Catholics uh, know so little about Scripture, and yeah. there's just so much room for good catechesis and good faith formation. And uh, something I tell the seminarians when I'm teaching is, you know what the first reading is for? It's actually not there to be ignored. <laughs> And I tell them, if I ever show up after you ordain, and if I, if I ever show up at a Mass and you just ignore the first reading, I will go after you. I will, I will hunt you down. Yeah. The, the first reading is meant to set up the Gospel reading, isn't it? Isn't there a, supposed to be a direct correlation between the two? It is. Yeah. It is. But very often, you can just the first reading is homiletics material right there. So, of course, the trick is to, to connect all the readings, the psalm and the first reading, and, yeah. the, and the gospel and the second reading. Yeah. 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 Oh, that is rich. Um, the the, the, the St. Paul, uh, the, yeah, okay, we got time. Uh, St. Paul, does he, how does he understand uh this nuptial imagery? How does he use it? Before we go to St. Paul, I should probably say a few things about what's going on in the Old Testament. Sure. The big picture yeah, no, go right the Old ahead. That's, that's fine. So the whole first half of the book is really focused on the Old Testament, so which the Jews know as, as the Tanakh, the, the Torah, the, the prophets, and the writings. And the whole idea is that nuptial symbolism is revealed in and through salvation history. And in my original dissertation, in this book, it's still there, uh, you see four key moments of salvation history mm-hmm. in uh, both Old Testament and New Testament. And these four key moments actually reflect very much a very Catholic worldview. And this is where I was stealthily doing Catholic theology as I was... Uh, at Hebrew University. At Hebrew yeah. University, yeah. yeah. And so we already talked about the Garden of Eden, God who who marries, who weds Adam and Eve, and who marries the world. And so marriage has this original prototype Right, that is ideal because marriage now, as human nature is wounded and marriage is wounded, we sometimes we often lose track of what marriage is supposed to be. So we see this original prototype in the wedding between Adam and Eve and yeah. between God and creation, and we know that that was broken through sin in Genesis three. So that calls for a redemptive moment. So number one, the prototype in the Garden of Eden, and what is this redemptive moment in the Old Testament? That would be Mount Sinai. Yeah. Okay. God reveals Himself to Israel. Uh, The rabbis say this is when God restored his presence on earth, this presence that had been lost with the sin of the Garden of Eden when his glory departed from creation. Mm -hmm. At Mount Sinai, he reestablishes his covenant, he weds, he marries uh, the people of Israel or betroths them, and now he is in this nuptial marriage relationship with them. But what's the problem? There's a few problems. First of all, there's the golden calf and the fact that the Israelites were not always super faithful. Right. But they had to depart from Mount Sinai, right? And so how would they remain in communion with God yeah. throughout their history, through the wanderings in the desert, you but also... Tabernacle so, and temple. And that's point number three. Yeah. Okay. So we have this redemptive moment that restores God's presence, but then how is God's presence going to remain through with Israel? And that's going to be in the tabernacle. And there's a liturgical component of that. Okay, hold it there. Okay. We'll pick it up on the other side. All right. Uh, my guest, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, we're taking a look at his uh, really great work called Divine Marriage, From Eden to the End of Days. And uh, looking over again, this idea of the mystical marriage between Christ and his church, between uh, God and Israel, between God and the world. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. 
More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. I turned from a recreational drug user to a drug addict. That took me to my knees. I lost a family, almost two families. I lost friends. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. I love it. My heart's there. I took communion after 18 years, and the rest of the Mass I sat and cried. God restored my life. God restored my family. God restored my love. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I come from the other side of the tracks. See? My uncle used to have slot machines. Put one nickel in and it's emptied. And I brought him home in a bag. And my mother looked at me. Where did you get all that money? I said, I won him. You didn't win him. He fixed the machine. I didn't care if he fixed the machine or not. You know? EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Good family discussions don't just happen, they take time. Family talk rituals help families be intentional about making real conversations happen. You need to be intentional if you want to get past exchanges like, what'd you do in school today? Nothing. Believe it or not, when the relationship between parents and kids is healthy, kids naturally want to open up to mom and dad. Kids want to know that their parents care enough to take time to listen and to understand how they're feeling and what they're going through. When parents make time to listen first, kids are more likely to willingly receive what mom and dad have to say. That's why family talk rituals are an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He always starts with the good things. You know, the seven letters to the churches and the book of Revelation is a great way to write letters to other people, by the way, or to have conversations with other people. You start with what's going well. You do this, this, and this really well. I love it. Thank you. Here's what you're lacking. And I think for many of us as men, what the Lord's communicating at that second part of the letter or the second part of the conversation is, here's what we're lacking. You don't ever spend enough time with me. You have no idea what I'm trying to offer you in the gift of my friendship. Or if you do, you don't make time for it. And if you would but come to me, I would change your life like that. But you don't come. Not with the regularity that I want you to come. Not with the ardor and the fervor and the passion that I want you to come. I have a hunch, I have more than a hunch, that's what he says to me. And I got a hunch that's what he would say to many of us. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number eight. eight. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, who's the author of Divine Marriage, 
From Eden to the End of Days. Uh, it's, it's a remarkably rich book. We've been going over some of it. Um, we're talking about the uh, this idea of the mystical marriage, uh, the nuptial imagery that we see, uh, especially uh, in the New Testament. But uh, he talked about mystical marriage as a return to the origins. So you see it with Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. Um, again, it's um, pointing to the mystical marriage between Christ and the church. Then there's mystical marriage as redemptive event, dealing with Passover, Exodus, and Sinai. And then uh, when the children of Israel um, are on the move, uh, you have mystical marriage and liturgical worship. So you have the tabernacle and then the temple. And then where do we go from there? Well, so that's number three. Number one, the prototype in the Garden of Eden. Number two, redemptive event to repair the break that was called by, caused by the fall. Mm-hmm. And then, as we said, Mount Sinai was very short-lived, and so they had to move on and move towards the Promised Land. And so that's when you had the tabernacle, and this required sacrifices uh, for the sake of communion. And uh, this is where there's really a lot in the, the Midrash and the commentaries that speak of the 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 Holy of Holies as a nuptial chamber, the place where God was united with his bride. So wow. uh, the, the marriage bed of sorts yeah. between God and Israel. So you don't usually think of that when you think of uh, of the temple. Right. But you have a lot of imageries in the uh, in the, the, the Talmud, for example, in those Jewish writings that are almost a little bit shocking. For example, when the, uh, the, the pagans, for example, the Greeks, when they took over the uh, Jerusalem at the time of the Maccabees, and they actually opened, they removed the curtain to see what was in the Holy of Holies, and they saw the two cherubim embracing each other. And oh. uh, even before that, the, some of the sages, we don't know if it's true or if it's legend or what right. is it, but it was part of the Jewish imagination. They said, uh, that, behold, Israel, this is how much God loves you, like a man loves a woman. Wow. And this is the love between God and you. So the temple was this recollection and recalling of Mount Sinai, of this betrothal or marriage. And at the same time, it pointed towards the future, towards the consummation of the marriage between God and Israel in the Messianic age. And that's what we see in the prophets, especially near the end of Isaiah, right around Isaiah 62 and things like that, about this restoration of the marriage. So it's a real drama between the fall and the the, the break uh, caused by sin, redemption, perpetuated through the liturgy and uh, sacrificial worship in the tabernacle, but also looking towards the future. And then when we come to the New Testament, we see that same pattern. The Messianic Age has started, but you're seeing the the pattern recapitulated. It's recapitulated, exactly. So we talked about the wedding at Cana, which has an allusion back to the Garden of Eden with Mary, who is the woman. Uh And then... What's going to be the great redemptive event? Well, that's kind of easy for us Christians. It's the Paschal Mystery, right? Sure. Where God uh, or Christ revealed his glory. Yes. And the Paschal Mystery, Jesus wore a crown, which is what bridegrooms also wore in the, in the uh, ancient uh, world. And uh, we have a lot of nuptial, for example, what does Nicodemus come and he brings myrrh and aloes, yes. right? Which yes. is something we, meet, we see in the Song of Songs. And even before his passion, we see Mary who anoints him with, uh, with nard. And the only other place in the Bible where we hear about nard is the Song of Songs. <laughs> and then at, the, at his resurrection, 
Unique to the Gospel of John, we see uh, Mary Magdalene who comes to the tomb. And think about this, we hear, we see a woman, it's still dark, she comes to the tomb, she's looking for the one she loves. Yes. She meets guardians and she asks them, you know, where have they, have you seen yes. the one I love? Yes. And then she sees, she turns around a few times, she sees Jesus and he says, do not hold on to me. Why does he say, do not hold on to me? Yeah. Well, that's the Song of Songs, chapter 3. I held him and I would not let him go until he brought me into my mother's chamber. That, 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 so there's echoes of the Song of Songs there. Uh, the resurrection, yeah. yeah. And what does Jesus say? I have not yet gone to the Father, for I go and prepare, uh, you know, I, I go prepare a place for you. So he's echoing the Song of Songs and his words and his actions at the, the resurrection. So there you have, this is your redemptive event in the New Covenant. It's his, his passion, death, and resurrection. But then... In the Old Testament, we have the tabernacle to perpetuate this. And how does that work now in the New Testament? Well, now we go back to your question from earlier. St. Paul, he says, well, first, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it happens within our bodies and our souls. But also, we have baptism and we have the Eucharist. What is baptism? Well, baptism is a washing of water. And what do Jewish women, even to this day, when they get married, they have to go through a mikveh, which is going down in the water and coming out for a type of ritual purification. And we see that in Ezekiel 16, we see this this metaphor of God adopting Israel as a woman who was abandoned, as a girl who was abandoned. He washed her and cleansed her to bring her into covenant with him. And then when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about this great, great mystery, yeah. which is the marriage between Christ and the church. And he said, yes, uh, he washed the church. All right, He washed her and uh, purified her so that she, she may be without spot or wrinkle. And so he's talking about baptism. He, he's also talking about this nuptial, this bridal bath of sorts. Yeah. Right, And then he says... Uh, for the, uh, you know, a husband shall love their wives as Christ loved the right. church and gave himself and, uh, you know, basically feeding her and nourishing yes. her. Yep. And this, here we have some Eucharistic allusions towards this one flesh union. So just as for Israel, the tabernacle perpetuated the marriage. For us, we see the marriage is consummated at the cross with a passion, but it's continued in through history, through the sacraments, especially baptism and the Eucharist. Wow. Yeah, it is interesting that this is a, this represents a worldview that is uh, well, it's alien to most uh, Christians. Right. You know, I mean, it's it is um, you 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 need how to how to put this? You need really an ecclesial culture mm-hmm. that um, expresses these truths, not only at the time of the liturgy. But in in the, the even in the daily life, um, as families as they as they think on these things, uh, how do these truths take form yes. uh, in the family culture that you're building? Yes, um, because this this is really goes. Uh, this is so much richer than the naturalistic and materialistic and scientific view of the world that I'm afraid uh, many Christians carry with them right. just because it's, that's the culture we swim in you know we get, right. that's what we that what we're wet with yeah. we're not wet with the truths of baptism <laughs> yeah we're wet with the truths of the culture that we're swimming in unfortunately yes yeah, yeah. yeah. The mystical marriage as eschatological consummation mm-hmm. okay this is 
we're in this period of time where the kingdom has been inaugurated, yeah. but it's not yet fully uh, right. manifest. Right. Um, how, what do you see that, uh, in light of this, how ought we to be living in this time between the already and the not yet? Yes. Yeah, well, the not yet, first we see a glimpse of it in the book of Revelation. Yeah. With the coming down of the new New Jerusalem uh, as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And so we see the end of salvation history is essentially a marriage, is yeah. the consummation of the yeah. marriage, Revelation 19 and, and 21. In the meantime, what should we do? Well, that is a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, first, we need to develop a, a biblical worldview. And as you just said, uh, it's the irony that in this day and age, we've never had such easy access to so, so many great resources and books and apps. And, and yeah. on our phones, we can have a whole library, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if there's ever been an age of so much ignorance of, of sacred scripture. Right. Right? right. As St. Jerome said, uh, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And so you're right. We see so many uh, Catholics and Christians who may even be devout Catholics sure. and Christians, but uh, still there's very often not a whole lot of depth in our knowledge of, of Scripture. And that's because I think particularly in America, we don't have a great culture of learning, of ongoing learning, with some exceptions, of course, and some great communities and so on. But uh, that's something else I learned from living in Israel is that uh, observant Orthodox Jews have such a great culture of learning. At every Sabbath meal, you know, they, they'll read from the Torah and they'll discuss the Torah. And it goes way beyond, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts yeah. that you're about to receive, which is basically the spiritual life of most Catholic families, right? Yeah. If even that, that we yeah. say a quick blessing and that's it. Then we yeah. talk about football and secular yeah. and yeah. frivolous stuff, right? And uh, so at every Sabbath, they, they pull out the Torah and they have, uh, you know, they give honor to God and discuss the word of God. And uh, young Jewish men on the Sabbath or even during the day, they go to the, the synagogue and spend 45 minutes uh, praying and studying the Torah. And sometimes the whole afternoon on the Sabbath, they go to their yeshivas, to their Bible or rabbinical schools, and they sit two by two and they just discuss the Word of God. And it's wow. a source of great joy and exhilaration almost. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they see the Torah as, as a source of joy. And uh, that's something that... We, as Catholics, we tend to see study, if at all, as a means to an end. So we study so that somehow we can, you know, get to heaven or get to know God. Mm -hmm. But they see study as the highest form of worship. Of course, they're lacking a lot, too, because they don't have the Eucharist and the sacraments. Sure, sure. But they see study as worship. Yeah. And I don't know how many Catholics actually have that approach to say, hey, I'm actually worshiping God by spending time with the scriptures. Yeah. And there's, there's in some Catholic circles, even a slight anti-intellectualism, yeah. that, that somehow study um, gets in the way of right. your encounter with God. Right. You know, um, right. And, and simply that's, you know, the right use of reason is uh, intended right. to direct us uh, to God, yeah. not become a barrier yeah. to knowing God. Um and so, yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, I, I, a, a, a culture where st studying is seen as um, a joy. It's I don't want to. I mean, when we think of we think of things that are a joy, we think about going and playing sports or something or right. games. Right. Uh, it sounds as though for them a joy is to immerse yourself in the text. 
mm-hmm. and see what you can derive from it. Yeah. Uh, and it's usually a communal thing, so you don't yeah, see so much good. in Jewish culture sitting alone at the library for hours on end and okay. just, just reading on your own. So it's usually at least two by two and in small groups. And it can involve, it usually involves eating, so that helps a lot in making things fun and more enjoyable. And often it involves singing and even dancing, you know, so it's, it's yeah. all really very, very well integrated. Um, the access, access against the Tree of Life. Let's set that up for us in this framework. Mm-hmm. Access to, to the tree of life. Well, I'm thinking of Proverbs 3.18, which says that wisdom herself is, is the tree of life. And I have a chapter on the wisdom literature, and especially I look at the book of Sirach, yeah. for which I'm writing a commentary right now for right. the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. And uh, Sirach 24 identifies wisdom. So there is this perpetual search for wisdom in all the wisdom books, right? Where is right. wisdom to be found? And we know the beginning of wisdom is is the fear of the Lord. So it involves humility, involves submitting to God's commandments. But in fact, the, the Sirach 24, as well as the book of Baruch, identify wisdom with with the Torah. Huh. And so, yeah. uh, and with the, the tree of life. And so, how do you get back to the tree of life? Well, through wisdom, but also by studying the Torah, which is this way of returning into communion with God. Yeah. Well, Andre, thanks. Uh, great talking with you. This it's been is a pleasure. Marvelous, marvelous book, and I'm, I've got it. Like I said uh, on Kindle, but I'm looking forward to its use on the uh, my digital library system. It's not yet there, but thank you. My we'll, pleasure. We'll thanks talk for again having soon. me. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Al Cresta. Be right back. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mother Angelica said that the essence of evangelization is to tell everyone that Jesus loves you. Matt Frad says that it is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Are we so full of the things of the world that we can't hear or receive the gifts that God is giving to us? In Isaiah, we hear, The Lord delights in you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Well, we often don't want to hear that, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it hits us over the head even more that we're invited to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. The Beatitudes are the eight roads to God. They lead us with his gifts of the Holy Spirit to become the new person in Christ who will find happiness and bring that happiness to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer. Type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked, 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children?
Thank you for being with us over that hour. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on uh, Andre Villeneuve's work. Well, you can check out his website for sure. Uh, CatholicsForIsrael.com is a fascinating resource looking at how Catholics understand the modern state of Israel, how Catholics understand the covenant between God and the Jewish people, tracing back thousands of years. This work of covenants is something that I've always found particularly fascinating. And also, if it's a topic that you're interested in learning more about, we have another program. Marcus Peter's program is called Unveiling the Covenants. You know Marcus, he's become kind of our go-to fill-in when Al is unable to do the program. And uh, you just go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can find his uh, audio of his inter- of his discussions that he has in his program. Also, if you go to YouTube, and just search Mar- Marcus Peter unveiling the covenants, you can see his uh, bright and smiling face as he explains the covenants that are the foundation of our faith. In the next hour, we look at what's become one of the most pressing issues in uh, our global discussion today, and that is the understanding of gender. And as I said earlier, this question has never been more pressing or more misunderstood. Unfortunately, it's become so politically motivated that it's hard to really have a discussion. And Abigail Favalli, I'll offer a the, the genesis of gender is our guest in the next hour at number seven in the countdown. And we'll be back with more on Cresta in the Afternoon. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to Hour 2 of this edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, continuing our 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. You may remember back earlier this year, I think it was around about April, the whole uh, fallout with Bud Light and its uh, partnership with the trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney. And the response to that was unlike anything I may have ever seen when it comes to these um, social boycotts, at least from the uh, conservative side. And for a while, you know, Bud Light was among the best-selling beers in America, and it fell way, way down the list. I think they're kind of working their way back now. I saw Kid Rock did an endorsement with them. A few of the different athletes have done some things. But the response to that, one of the things I thought was so silly is fairly early on in the saga, Bud Light issued this statement saying, hey, we're just trying to have fun with making advertisements. Why is everybody so upset about this? We never thought that this was going to generate such a response. And I just found that to be so ignorant that they almost had to be just lying to us because other than you know abortion, this might be the most hot button issue in America right now how to deal with gender, transgender issues, gender ideology. And unfortunately, it seems like we're just kind of speaking different languages when we have debates on this. And that's part of why we have Abigail Favalli here joining us today. Hershey's got an outstanding book called The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. And we've talked with her about this book a couple of times. And it's in the countdown again for this, this new conversation that we had with her earlier this year, helping us understand who we are as men and women, and why that discussion is so crucial today. Abigail is a writer and professor at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, authored this wonderful book, The Genesis of Gender. And you can also find her memoir, Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion, and follow her on Twitter.
Twitter at Fav, F-A-V-A-L-E-A-B-S. And we'll have that, of course, linked for you in the Crested Guest Archives. So let's get to the news right now. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, December 28th. It's the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need. Learn more at visitingangels.com. A second American who was originally believed to be taken hostage by Hamas is dead. Reporters say Judy Haggai died during the surprise attacks on September 7th. The announcement of her death comes after her husband was pronounced dead last week. The dual Israeli-American citizens were on their morning walk when the attack happened. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is clarifying recent comments she made about the Civil War. Haley faced widespread criticism after failing to mention slavery as a cause of the war during a town hall meeting in New Hampshire. During a radio interview Thursday, Haley said, of course the Civil War was about slavery, adding that she was speaking more broadly on the importance of individual rights and liberties for all people. Haley on Wednesday was asked by a voter, what was the cause of the Civil War? She gave a lengthy response about the role of the government and the rights of the people, but never discussed slavery. Another busy travel day is underway as people return home after Christmas. According to FlightAware, over 3,200 flights have been delayed today. This comes as over 50 flights have been canceled. Meanwhile, AAA is recommending drivers to hit the road sooner rather than later as more and more vehicles start to clog the highways and byways. More than 115 million people have traveled this holiday season. And pop your champagne this new year, because it could cease to exist. New data shows the grapes used in almost all champagne are just some of hundreds upon the brink of extinction. That's due to the human-caused climate crisis altering water patterns in famous wine-growing regions, including Champagne in northern France. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number seven. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now is Dr. Abigail Favalli. She's a writer and professor of the practice in gender studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. She's the author of The Genesis of Gender. You can find other writings of hers at First Things, Public Discourse, The Atlantic. And don't miss her memoir, uh, Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion. Abigail, good to have you back here. Thank you. Yeah, good to be back. Let's start uh, a quick overview of how you, uh, who a committed feminist academic teaching gender studies, how did you, what led you to rethink the position uh, that you had been teaching for years? Well, it's a complicated story, but one one big piece of it was becoming a mother for the first time uh, near the end of my 20s. And that began to raise questions in my mind that did not seem to be answered in a satisfactory way by the feminist theory that I'd devoted my uh, profession to. And one of those things was that um, there, in, in much of secular feminist thought, there's this um, emphasis on the ideal of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And becoming a mother, you know, and experiencing kind of the full activation of my femaleness and realizing that 
there's so much about human life that's about interdependence. Yes. Um, and that um, feminism is, is uh, has kind of a, ironically, an, it idealizes, um, has a masculine ideal in that it sees like femaleness as almost a threat or a problem to be overcome. Um, so those were certain things that were starting to shift in my mind. I also became the mother to a son, so I became newly interested in questions about what boys experience and um, the, the kind of burdens placed on them in society. And I think my my heart and my mind were expanding in a yeah. way that just didn't didn't. It was kind of hitting against like the ceiling of this of this ideology that I held for so long. So that was a big part of it was becoming a mother. Becoming a mother, um, you know. We've, Western culture has been going through great debates on this. Uh, when I was being raised, uh, I don't recall, in the 1950s and early 60s, I don't recall there being too much of a debate about uh, male and female. I'm sure it was going on in academic circles, but not in the world I was living in. Um, you were born a boy or a girl, and uh, I can remember it was many, many years later, uh, probably 10 years ago now, that I first heard a story of a college professor explaining to his uh, first uh, his students the first day of class, and he had a picture of his family up there, and one of the students asked, oh, I see, you've got a, 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 an infant, a boy or girl. And the fellow actually said, well, we haven't decided to assign a gender uh, to this child yet. And I, I actually thought it was a joke. I thought I was being put on. So we've moved from a pretty simple understanding of you're a boy and you're a girl to I don't know what you are and I'm not sure who I am anymore. How did we move? How did we move from there? Right, and that's a great question. Um, so one of the stories that I, one of the threads I trace in the book, The Genesis of Gender, is how our current understanding of gender has grown out of a lot of feminist thought. Um, so one big piece of the picture is that in much of feminist thought, there's an emphasis on reality being a social construct yes. and a construct of language and social norms and customs. Um, so what we perceive to be real and true, uh, what we take for granted mm -hmm. is actually um, a narrative that society creates and that we then internalize and kind of read on to the world. Um, so one of the one of the other ironies in feminist thought is that there's this underlying discomfort with the idea that there is such a thing as human nature, but certainly that there is such a thing as woman's nature, right? So even though feminism is supposed to be concerned about woman, yes. it's also very reluctant to say that woman exists as anything other than the social construct, right, or than the story that society tells about women. So there's no so essence you, to yeah. all women. Exactly, yeah. yes. So essentialism, right, because that's, essence is the perfect word, right? So feminist thought is very anti-essentialist. Like, I remember when I was doing my dissertation, and any time I would try to, like, so I was simultaneously trying to write about women, but then I had to do these, like, acrobatic moves <laughs> to make sure I wasn't actually positing something about women, you know, something essentialist about women, right? So I, I had to try to explain that, that away because there's, there's this deep suspicion um, toward essentialism and feminist thought. And so that kind of paves the way for this emptying out of 
like if, if woman is really just a social construct, then it becomes something that is assigned at birth rather than recognized, mm-hmm. right? So there's a detachment of gender from something that kind of determines it in a pre-social way. Um, so that's one of the pieces, is this emphasis on social constructionism. And um, you also mentioned that uh, contraception plays a big role in this change. Yes. Tell us how that plays right. into it. Sure. So basically, what I what I argue is that there's a conceptual revolution, which I was kind of just describing, right. this transition from thinking in terms of sex as rooted in the generativity of the body to gender as this kind of language, this social construct, right? So that's the conceptual shift of sex to gender. But there's also a contraceptual shift that's happening. So there's this significant technological change um, in how men and women now live in the world and interact and and couple and all that. Um, And so I make the argument that one of the effects of contraception has been to kind of reshape our cultural imagination where we no longer think of man and woman in procreative terms, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like that truth has kind of been um, sidelined for us because we now think of men and women as these kind of naturally ser- sterile beings, right? That our fertility and our procreativity is something we like opt into. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that distancing from the procreative meaning of what it means to be a man or it means to be a woman, then there's a shift to a focus on things like behavior or stereotypes or norms, right? There's these externalities. So then it becomes a matter of looking like a woman or adopting the social role of a woman, kind of stepping into that that space that is woman because it's not really rooted in the nature of the body itself, yeah. right? So I kind of make the argument that contraception kind of also helped dethrone sex in terms of sexual difference in our imagination to make room for this concept of gender. Because it drives a wedge between um, the reproductive potential of the body and the, uh, the activity of sex itself. Right, yeah, so we just don't, and this is, I think this is really deeply true, like we you know, women kind of grow up thinking that, like, pregnancy is something that goes wrong. You know, you're almost, like, taught to be afraid of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you you need to protect yourself from it, right? So you need to kind of be on birth control, almost as like it's it's medicine that women require, right? So it it gives you this kind of upside-down vision of your own femaleness as as this threat, as something to be overcome, um, and not as actually something that's, that's intrinsic to who I am. That's like the ground of, of what it means to be a woman, right? So we just really distance ourselves from generativity. We just don't think, we don't think about men and women in terms of generativity anymore. So you use the example of uh, a potato head, Mr. or Mrs. Potato Head, I don't know, but where, where you can, you've got this, you know, head, uh, and what you do is you can not slap onto it uh, various ornaments or attachments to make it whatever you want it to be. Um, is that is generativity one of those things that you would just slap on? Well, yes and no, right? Because generative potential is not something that we can um, we can turn it off or we can try to disrupt it, but we can't choose to have the potential if we don't have it to begin with. 
Yes, that's right. Yes. So I can't, yeah. So I can't, like, choose, you know, to be a father. I, I can't choose to beget um, in that way. Yeah. I can disrupt my own body, right? And that's something that I think is really interesting because if we were to think more in terms of generativity, it would become much clearer that you can't really change sex because you can't adopt the procreative potential of the other sex. Yes. That's not something that's possible. Yeah. We can use technology to kind of change the appearance um, of certain secondary sexual characteristics, but that potential to either gestate, right, on the female side mm -hmm. or inseminate on the male side, that's something that um, is inborn, right, and we can't, we can't adopt that. Um, so the Mr. Potato Head, it's, the analogy is like the it's the external things that we can kind of try to mess with and choose and opt in and opt out, but the innate kind of ground of all like the the like the whole purpose like the organizing purpose of all those different characteristics like that's something we can't choose if we don't have it to begin with. So, uh, the, okay, okay, let's do it this way. Um, how what is what is a woman? How would you define woman? Sure. Um, I would define a woman as the kind of human being whose whole body is organized according to the potential to gestate new life. Okay. So there's a couple of like key words in in there I want to hit, which is <laughs> one like whole body. Yeah. Right. So every system in the in the female is in the in a woman is different than in a man so like my immune system is different because it needs to be able to accommodate and uh, kind of foreign you know being growing inside of me if yeah. that happens yeah. right so all of my, my whole body participates in this um kind of this procreative potential so that's one thing you have to look at the whole body you can't just say well oh it's the presence of a womb or not right because even a woman who's had a hysterectomy Still, her whole body is organized according to that, to that potential, right? right so right. you have to look at the whole body. So that's one piece. And then when I use the term potential, I'm using it in a very particular way. It's in a philosophical term. And the difference is between potential and actual. So or potency and act is another way of saying it. But basically, um, even if the potential is never actualized, it is always present, so that means that this definition I'm giving, it includes infertile women. It includes postmenopausal women. It includes prepubescent girls, right? So my daughter, who's eight, right now, you know, she's, she hasn't had her period yet. She couldn't actually, you know, actualize her procreative potential. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, her, even now, her whole body is organized according to that potential that is in development and will eventually, you know, be able to be activated, right? Yeah. So it doesn't, it's there, you know, in an innate way. Hold it there if you would, Abigail. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest is Dr. Abigail Favalli, the author of The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. We'll be coming back, continuing the conversation, and also looking back to our story of origin, that is the book of Genesis. I'm Al Cresta. What is conversion? The Catholic Catechism says there are two kinds of conversions. The first is baptism, which removes original sin and washes away all other sin. The second is the conversion of the heart from sin to the merciful love of God. It is Jesus who calls us to this conversion. 
The time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. A perfect example of this conversion is St. Peter, who, after denying his master three times, burst into tears of repentance. St. Ambrose describes the two conversions as the water and tears, the water of baptism and the tears of repentance. Jesus' call to conversion is not first and foremost to outward penance, such as sackcloth and ashes, but to an interior conversion of the heart, without which penances are sterile and futile. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There's so many issues that need to be discussed when we're looking at this continuing problem of mass shootings. At the heart of it is what's going on with the human person, though. Father John Mercado brings up deaths of despair in great detail in his beautiful Rescue Project series. Or so many young people now, or with that survey pre-COVID, were talking about how desperate they felt, how lonely they felt, how isolated they felt how suicidal they felt. And then we had a recent survey come out from the CDC looking at a similar case with young girls. And this feeling of desperation and loneliness that despite everything they had access to and what they could do with their bodies, this so-called freedom, the world's version of freedom that's shoved down our throats every single day, they're still not happy. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. He was a pope, a saint, and a doctor of the church. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. Pope St. Gregory I the Great is one of only four popes honored as the Great. Among his many achievements was sending missionaries across Northern Europe, especially St. Augustine of Canterbury, who brought Christ to the people of England. In a pun, Pope Gregory called the English people angels. He died in 604. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Support for this Ave Maria Radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? stanthonyservices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. The best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number seven. 
afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Abigail Favalli. She is the author of The Genesis of Gender, and we're taking on some of the questions related to sexual identity, uh, what is gender, what is sex, and we were talking just before the break, asking uh, Abigail to have a, to give us a definition of woman, and uh, a woman uh, is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life. And uh, important here is that its body, the entire body, is organized, and that it, this is a potential to gestate new life. You've already touched on this before, but I'll, I'll re-ask it, and that is, if you say that to a group of college-age women today, wouldn't they immediately try to say that you're reducing women to the reproductive potential? Uh, mm-hmm. And how would you respond? Right. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Well, it's not reductive, right? I mean, what the definition I'm giving is the ground of, of what it means to be a woman, mm-hmm. but it's not the be-all, end-all, right. right? Because women are also human beings, right? Yeah. So that means that we share in the full range of um, human power, such as the intellect, free will, reason, emotions, um, we can cultivate virtue, right? So there's this, this this huge dimension that can be elaborated on. But when it comes to what is specific to women, like mm. what distinguishes a woman from other kinds of human beings, that is the difference. Um, yes. And okay. it's not, it doesn't have to be reductive, right? Because as a Catholic as well, I would say that because we are body soul beings, mm-hmm. right? We are unities mm-hmm. of body and soul. There's also a spiritual dimension right. to womanhood. There's a spiritual dimension to this potential that can be realized and cultivated as well, like a spiritual maternity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually something that expands far beyond the biological, but it has to include the biological, yes. right? And that's the that's the kind of error I would say is that. It is possible to include the body without being reductive. Yes. And so the accusation of being reductive, I think, um, is is not an accurate one, because I'm not reducing a woman to that. But I'm also not, you know, disregarding that fact right. or that reality. But ignoring the body is, is really, um, isn't that, a, I'm just surprised that people are able to do that. I mean, we are really physical beings i mean we're more than that but do, do gender theorists ignore the significance of us as embodied beings yeah yes and no right so there's there's kind of there's kind of a paradox here because if you look at the gender phenomenon in our culture it both denies that there's this inherent dignity and meaning to the body but at the same time it's also profoundly preoccupied with the body, right? The, the body becomes almost this project that has to be changed in order to approximate this, this physical ideal. So it's not so much that the body is totally disregarded, but it's rather that the body is thought of as not carrying its own inherent meaning. Okay. There's no givenness to the body, right? It's yes. almost this instrument, this blank slate. This is where the potato head analogy right, comes in, right. right? It's something that we can kind of like manipulate and rearrange. We can modify according to our desires. Um, so there's this this kind of technological 
body modification element to it as well. Because I, I do think that, um, you know, it's when, I don't know, when you hear sometimes people who um, are, you know, struggling with gender and trying to kind of pursue this ideal, there is this intense preoccupation with the body. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a denial um, of the body's existence, but rather it's a denial of the body's meaning, that there's kind of a, a givenness to the body that we should receive as gifts. Yes. The body becomes a project. And yeah. the reason for anxiety is you're not sure what to do exactly what to do with this project. You've rejected the givenness of it, the giftedness of it, and its teleological, you know, uh, design. And so, now what do I do with it? Is is the question? What do I want to look like? Um, so let me let me ask then uh, for a definition of of a man. How would you define a man? man. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, you can give basically the same definition. So, um, a man, and here I'm speaking about like male humans, right? Yes. So, yes. Ma- I'm focusing on like gestation and insemination because that's what's true for mammals. You know, it's, mm-hmm. for other sexually reproducing species, we could talk about gametes. We really wanted to get technical, right? So that in in mammals, females have the potential to gestate and they produce large gametes, and then males have the innate potential to inseminate or perhaps in Aristotelian terms we could say to generate outside of oneself. Okay. So you could say a man is a kind of human being with the innate potential to generate outside of himself. Okay. Um, now, so it's this role in generation. Yeah. So one of the things that has become popular is to talk about uh, a gender spectrum um, and part of making that case, people like to play uh, the intersex card. So they'll say, well, no, uh, there's not just male and female. We've got a whole classification of, quote, intersex people, by which they mean um, disorders of sexual development. So years ago, they used to be called hermaphrodites and things like that. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about what I know that you, this is a they, this is a trump card that's used, but uh, yes. it falls apart. I think under your analysis. So go ahead, go at it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought this up because I think this is honestly, if I could pinpoint one problem at the root of the confusion in our time right now, it's a misunderstanding of what sex is. Um, so the trump card, basically, that you're describing is. You know, if you say, well, there is a binary, there's a sex binary, male and female, then the response is, no, there isn't because intersex people exist. So intersex is a canopy term. So it refers to a range of over a dozen different conditions that disrupt or affect the development, sexual development process in some way. So they lead to some kind of irregularity. Now, there are a few important things to realize. One is that the vast majority of DSDs or intersex conditions do not result in sexual ambiguity. Okay. So in other words, you might have a female who has an intersex condition um, where um, her genitalia doesn't form correctly. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's no ambiguity that she's female. Right. All right. So I think, the intersex card here is actually a dehumanizing one because it implies that any irregularity in sexual development 
means that, you know, this female isn't really female or somehow other is like exempted from the sex binary, right? So the first thing to realize is that the vast majority of intersex conditions do not lead to sexual ambiguity. So it's, it's much more precise to actually talk about a female, like a woman with an intersex condition or right. a man with an intersex condition, right? right? Now, now, in the minority of very complex DSDs, which do result in apparent sexual ambiguity at birth, um, this is where there needs to be a more careful look at the entire and what's going on in the body of this particular person. Um, and that requires, you know, a team of different specialists to kind of see what's going on. Because often these more complex disorders of sexual development, they're almost, they're almost impossible to generalize from mm -hmm. because there's something that's very specific going on in the individual. Um, but even in these situations, um, looking at the whole person and especially through the sexual development process over time, one or the other, like maleness or femaleness, will predominate. Okay. So there's never been in recorded medical history an example of a human being who has both the procreative potential of a male and the procreative potential of a female, hmm. right? Okay. Um, so that's what a hermaphrodite really is. And so it, it, that's why it's not correct to speak of hermaphroditic human beings. Right. Um, so, and, and most, you know, the complex DSDs, a lot of them result in infertility, right? Sure. Right. So it's clear that this isn't like a third sex. This isn't, you know, there's no other option besides male or female. But um, the statistics are in 99.982% of all live births, sex is unambiguously male or female. Yeah. So that is actually, to me, remarkably stable. I would almost oh, expect yeah. there to be mo a little more instances where things go awry, just considering the complexity of the sexual development process. Yeah. But the, the sex binary is remarkably stable in human beings. Um, and, you know, another, another thing to point out, I think, is that um, it's, um, it is how every human being comes into existence. Right, the sex binary. Yeah. So there's this, this real kind of denial of reality in denying, um, in denying the sex binary. So, yeah, the intersex card, I think it's unfortunate because um, people who have intersex conditions, they have physiological, like objectively physiological conditions that um, sometimes require therapeutic support. And so to have their circumstances kind of used as a way to try to upend um, the the idea that we're a sexually differentiated species. It's really unfortunate, you know, it's, it's a misuse of their circumstances. Yeah. I, it's, it is, it's, remains amazing to me that it, it has reached this level um, where, you know, you, you have corporate entities um, going out of their way to appeal to what they see as a, a trans market. Uh, you, you mentioned Tampax, who tweeted an ad which proclaimed, not all people with periods are women. Let's celebrate the diversity of people who bleed. I mean, that, that is silly to the point of being stupid. <laughs> I don't understand what they think this, this uh, who, who's, who are they appealing to? But let me step back a bit. How, so who first decides to move in this direction? What's the motivation? Are there theorists who have a, a, an anthropological theory they want to 
to push? Um, are there people who are struggling with gender uh, dysphoria, gender incongruence, and they're just trying trying to find a way of a certain peace? How does this How does this uh, begin? Yeah, this is a great question, actually, and it's one I'm still trying. It's a no, I'm still trying to untangle. Um, But maybe we can. Hold hold it there. We'll come back and pick it up on the other side of the (laughs) break. Okay, my guest is Dr. Abigail Favali, the genesis of gender, a Christian theory. Uh, We're also going to take a look at the Book of Genesis in the next segment as well. I'm Al Cresto. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchek. Most parents would like to raise generous kids, but where do you start? Well, authentic generosity doesn't start with serving strangers. It starts with looking for little ways families can make each other's lives easier at home. Start a new habit in your family. Make it a rule that everyone should look for one way to leave a room better than they found it. It doesn't matter who left the coat off the hook or who left the toy on the floor. If you see it, deal with it. The important point is, good teams don't bicker about whose job something is because everybody on the team is just committed to giving their all to get the job done. Practicing generous service at home is one of the most important things Catholic families can do. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. We just did our parish mission a couple weeks ago now. 
And I suggested that in the course of the mission that we do something like a, a little mini spiritual assessment of our lives. I don't have to show this to anybody, but a great chance for us just to, with real honesty, just between us and Jesus, ask ourselves some questions. First question, given the fact that half of Catholics don't think God is even personal, would be to ask ourselves that. Do I think God is personal? And then to ask myself, do I think a relationship with Jesus is possible? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? And if so, what's it look like? And then perhaps a little bit more awkwardly or painfully to ask Jesus from his perspective, what's the friendship that we have with him look like? How would he describe our friendship with him? That might be a hard conversation to have. The best. 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 Best of Creston in the Afternoon Countdown. Number seven. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Abigail Favalli. Um, she is a professor of gender studies at McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and the author of The Genesis of Gender. Before the break, I asked, uh, where, where did the drive... Uh, for this displacing of human beings as male and female, this binary, where did this drive come from to all of a sudden displace our traditional understanding of sex with this more fluid idea of gender? Did it come from uh, theoreticians who were working on you know, their own anthropology, trying to figure out uh, how to make contributions to their field? Does it come from... Uh, tortured souls who with gender dysphoria or looking for any port in a storm uh tell me abigail what do you make of it yeah so this this is tricky so you have you have this phenomenon happening in the academy right that we kind of talked about at the beginning of the hour so you have these trendy theories about gender as a social construct that become pretty mainstream in the higher education in the academy by the time, you know, we're in the early 2000s, for sure. Mm -hmm. But then something that is a big factor, I think, in the popularization of these theories is the, the kind of 2010s, that decade, when we begin to see the social media platforms arise for the first time. And so in some of these platforms, you have, first of all, um, a lot, you have a lot of different people interacting with one another, like you have adults who might be in academia interacting with like 12 year olds yeah. on Tumblr, right? right because right. they're both fanatics. So they're both like really into Harry Potter or whatever. Yeah. So there's this kind of, um, so I think especially Tumblr actually in, in the, in the 2010s became almost like this, um, what's the phrase? Like almost like this crucible or something or this, this place where all these ideas kind of flowed in and then combined with like fandom culture and youth culture and then kind of spawned these new understandings of gender. So I can remember, I think it was around 2014 when Facebook, like all of a sudden came out with a list of like, I don't know, 30 plus gender. Yeah, I right? remember. Like, Here's what you can choose for. You know, I think that for a lot of people, that was when it was like, wait, what? <laughs> this came out of nowhere. And I remember being fascinated because that is very different from the gender theory, like the academic kind of high gender theory I learned, which was all about disrupting categories. <clears throat> it was not about creating new categories right. and boxing people in, right? So it's like this gender theory was beginning, like through the kind of 
social media um, influence and that kind of melting pot of social media, it was taking on this, this new form. And then once it becomes embedded in youth culture, then it really becomes profitable. So it's at this point when something becomes really a part of youth culture that you're going to see corporations start to use that language, try mm-hmm. to appeal to the youth culture. You know, you mentioned Tampax, right? Like, yeah. I, mean, one of, I mean, the demographic that is the biggest proponent of gender theory are um, young adult women. Mm-hmm. Right? So women in their late teens and early 20s. Wow. Really. So, um, and those demographics have a have a lot of power in terms of shaping popular culture. Um, so popular culture always is kind of tied up with youth culture. So I think that's, and then once it becomes commodified, then it becomes a way that, that people can make money, right, and then it kind of balloons. And then there's also, to add one more thread to this, would be the kind of medical industry that began to see, I think, um, a way of making a lot of money on the medical transition procedures. Wow. Um, and so, in fact, I think that you mentioned, you know, people who are experiencing gender distress. I think in some ways um, the, the people who are kind of have maybe more of an, uh, a deep-seated kind of early-onset gender dysphoria are almost getting, like, lost in the mix. And then once something becomes a part of youth culture, then it becomes something to imitate, right? It becomes right. appealing. It, like, becomes part of this um, like mimetic desire that drives culture, you know, it becomes something to want. It becomes something interesting and trendy. Um, and then yeah, then the that's where... Social yeah, contagion, so, then. Exactly. Yeah. So then, then it can actually, in some cases, not all cases, you know, begin to create a gender distress that yeah. wasn't present before, yeah. right? We see this among young... This is... This is a feature of female youth culture. We've seen it in eating disorders. We've seen it in self-harm, right? There are these, you know, adolescent females are very intense with their emotional distress, Mm -hmm. and they're also very susceptible to to peer influence. And so it's not just about the gender. It's kind of the latest version of it. But the problem is that now we have this whole cultural wave and that's, that's sweeping along with it, yeah. right? That's actually yeah. trying to say, no, this is good and this is right. I mean, th- this. I, I don't. I'm trying to think of uh, a previous uh, phenomenon like this, which ends up in the academy. It ends up in the most popular uh, youth uh, uh, outreach. That turns. That ends up being found to be false how does this how how do how are we going to how are we going to decertify this thing mm, yeah that's a good yeah i mean this is really you can see like like aspects of it that have appeared historically like you sometimes people point when they're thinking about the medical scandal side of things they point to lobotomies right right well, lobotomies were never like part of like you know, right? <laughs> you can't, it wasn't like a TikTok influencer thing, right? Like where this is like become your best self by being lobotomized, right? So right. now there is this whole this whole kind of youth culture apparatus to it that gives it so much more scale and influence. So it's all again, it's almost like this perfect storm of all these things happening at once. Um, and as far as how how we climb out of it, I mean, one I. I, I saw some recent polling data of American of the American public, and what's interesting to me is, and when asked the question, 
are there more than two genders? It seems as though public opinion is actually shifting away from the gender theory stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it may have peaked in 2021. I mean, who knows what could happen, but at least this polling data is, there are more people who are kind of saying, look, there are only two genders than there were in 2021. And it's more than half the population. So I do think that you have kind of extremist, you know, views on either end of the, the spectrum, but I think the vast majority of American people are, um, are are firm and and even almost like becoming more convinced that no, actually there are only two genders. So that's one sign I think yeah. that's hopeful is that maybe this is starting to this may have peaked in a way, yeah. um, which doesn't mean it's going away anytime soon. But yeah. um, I also think that the the debates about youth gender medicine, right? Um, I think that is something that, that is a tide that is going to shift, and it's already shifting in Europe. You have all these European countries who are further along in terms just that they've been doing this for longer, yeah. and these medical procedures on young people. They're looking at the evidence, and they're saying, we have to we have to rein this in. Yeah. We're going with, you know, we're not going to be medicalizing gender distressed youth anymore. Yeah. Now, the U.S. is more complicated because we have this political polarization that, that is kind of feeding this, right? So it's not just about looking at the evidence and, and following the evidence. Right. So, um, but I think, I think lawsuits will make a difference here in terms of medical malpractice. So I do have hope that the, the youth gender medicine will become more regulated. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and yeah. Well, I want to make there sure... There are some signs of hope. Very good. No, that's, that's helpful. Uh, I did want to make sure we got to the book of Genesis, though. Because here's okay. your woman who has uh, served in feminist theory and gender theory, and you actually think the book of Genesis makes more sense of our human experience than any of these theories. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> tell I us, do. tell us why. <laughs> so, the book of Genesis is is incredibly unique, and I'm talking here mainly about the creation narrative. Um, so the first three chapters of Genesis. And if you compare the Genesis creation accounts with other creation narratives from around the world and other cultures, you really start to realize that the sexual differentiation of human beings is presented with so much more emphasis and so much more dignity than any other creation account that mm-hmm. exists. So m- most of the creation accounts either don't mention the sexual differentiation of people, like male and female. Or if they do, it's like a bad thing. <laughs> you know, like, oh, then for some reason women had to exist, you know, yeah. which is yeah. a drag, you know. So <laughs> when, you, when you think about um, the way Genesis, I mean, even if you look at Genesis 1 and then also Genesis 2, the culmination of God's creative action in the world is not just the creation of human beings, but it's actually the creation of human beings specifically as male and female. Like, even if you just step back and look at when the text breaks out into poetry, into yeah. verse, rather than prose, mm-hmm. in both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it's the moment. Um, in Genesis 1, it's the creation of human beings in the image of God, male and female, he created them. Like, the text suddenly starts to sing at right. that moment. Right. In Genesis 2, it's the, the first word spoken by a human being recorded in scripture and it's when the man is sees the woman for the first time and in that moment also understands himself and yeah. he says at last bone of my bones flesh of my flesh yeah. and then in that in that 
moment of song, the words male and female are spoken um, in, for the first time in that particular creation account. So it's not, it's not an afterthought. It's not something that's wrong with the world, but it's actually something that is part of God's self-revelation. Right? So there's so much richness here happening theologically um, that is grounded in Genesis in terms of um, male and female and that, that generative potential they have together to create new life images the Trinity itself, because the, the Trinity is an interpersonal communion who is life-giving. And in our maleness and femaleness, we are able to be an image, kind of a mirror, a microcosm of the Trinity. So it's through being male and female. There's like this language of revelation Mm -hmm. in our bodies. And I find that to be so beautiful and so compelling. I mean, so much more so than a story that, you know, woman is just a construct, right? right? And this is just an oppressive construct that we need to overthrow and break free from. Rather than this is a way um, that God is writing the story of his love for us in our very bodies. Yeah. Right? I mean, I just find that so beautiful. I, I, you know, I, this idea of man, woman, male, female as social construct, it seems to steal uh, away. A it steals a lot of the um, wonder that we find in poetry and in literature. Um, you just, if, if male and female are simply social constructs, then a lot of the agonizing between man and woman, uh, becomes rather silly. It seems to me, um, you can, anyways, I just, what I don't, uh, we're out of time. Darn it. Had another question for you, but, uh, we'll talk again. And, um, what are you working on now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I have I have another book in the works and another some ideas I'm rolling around with. But um, one thing I'm hoping that my work will do in the future is to continue to give a positive portrayal of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man in our time um, using the resources of Catholic theology and tradition. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate your work and uh, recommend it all the time. And I thank you, thank you for taking the time and uh, hope to meet you someday. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Thank you for having me. Dr. Abigail Favalli, The Genesis of Gender. Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not. If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got to vent. Is this so? It's old theory, somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's old theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before you vent. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. 
In the fourth rule for the discernment of spirits, St. Ignatius of Loyola describes seven forms of spiritual desolation. The first form of spiritual desolation is darkness of soul. This darkness of soul is in direct contrast to the workings of the good spirit in spiritual consolation, that of inspiration. A soul experiencing darkness of soul feels they are in, as Father Timothy Gallagher describes it, an anxiety-filled darkness. Father Gallagher writes, Here the person feels helplessly trapped in confusion, unable to comprehend what is occurring spiritually. Mingled with this inability to understand is the effectively heavy sense that all things are going badly and will continue to worsen. Though the experience of spiritual desolation can be difficult, the call is always to reject it. Spiritual desolation is always built on a lie. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on those conversations that we just had. We'll have links to Andre Villeneuve's work at Catholics for Israel. You will have links to Abigail Favalli's uh, blog and Twitter uh, account. And we'll also have her book, uh, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, one of several great conversations we've had over the last few years as we continue to explore these uh, these themes. would also highly recommend you check out John Birch's book, Loving God's Children, which is also available in the online store and wherever else you buy great Catholic books. As we go off the air, Catholics Answers Live is ready to take your calls. We'll be back tomorrow with more. Continuing this Crest in the Afternoon Countdown, I'll give you a little spoiler. Both guests tomorrow help us confront big lies that we have to face as Catholics. Until then, have a great evening and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.